25. Our text today is actually three full chapters of Exodus. Don't worry, I won't be reading the whole thing right now. In fact, we're not even going to be reading the whole thing at any point during the message, just uh, for sake of time. But I would encourage you, uh, if you have not already done, I know many of you read along and and uh, study along on your own with the uh, the series that we do uh, here as we gather uh, but I would encourage every one of you to take time either today or this week sometime to read through these three chapters. And um, I'll be alluding to much of what's in there today, but just uh, simply for the sake of time, we're not going to read uh, the entire uh, three chapters. Uh, but I would certainly encourage you to uh, spend some time reading and meditating on some of the things that we will uh, learn today from our study in the book of Exodus. I will, as we begin, uh, read the first nine verses of Exodus 25. Which says this, the Lord said to Moses, speak to the people of Israel that they take for me a contribution from every man whose heart moves him. You shall receive the contribution for me. And this is the contribution that you you shall receive from them. Gold, silver and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen, goat's hair, tanned ram skins, goat skins, acacia wood. Oil for the lamp, spices for the anointing oil, and for the fragrant incense. Onyx stones and stones for setting, for the ephod and for the breastpiece. And let them make me a sanctuary, that I may dwell in their midst. Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all its furniture, so you shall make it. Let's pray. Father, Thank you for the access that we have to your throne through Jesus. Thank you that we have received from you your word and are able to look into it and learn more of you. Thank you for the opportunity we have right now to open your word. And I pray that through our study today, our hearts would be moved having seen the glory of the Lord. That we would be encouraged, having known the sacrifice of Christ on our behalf. And that we would be strengthened to press on in the power and might of your Holy Spirit that indwells us. That we, through our obedience to you, might more and more reflect the glory of our great God and Creator. We pray these in Jesus' name. Amen. For most of us, our home is simply a place that we can live, a place that we can enjoy our family, a place that we can sleep at night, a place we just really want to be comfortable. Most of us only really need one. And we don't think too much outside of of just wanting ourselves to be comfortable in that home. For some, however, homes are a symbol of a certain status they have achieved. The more extravagant your home, the more people look on you with respect and admiration. You must have things together. You certainly have at least access to a a big loan, if not a lot of cash in your pocket. 
And for many people, things like homes and, and other possessions are, are a means of flaunting their status to others. You see, we're talking about a home today. We're going to read and, and, and look at a home, a dwelling place. We're tipped off very early in the section I just read. The purpose of what God is instructing His people to do is stated very simply in verse 8. We just read it. Let me read it for us again. And this is the key to this, this whole section that begins with chapter 25 here. Moses instructs them to gather all these things for this purpose. He tells Moses, let them make for me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. We're talking about a home. This was to be a sanctuary, a place sanctified, set apart for God. The word tabernacle that is used here and throughout the Old Testament refers to a dwelling place. This was to be God's dwelling place. God was, God was doing something that hadn't been seen before. He was coming to dwell with His people in a new way. And in order to aid in our understanding of in our study today, I want us to view this tabernacle, this, this home, God's home, through four lenses. And these, these are the four points. They're printed in your bulletin. These will help you follow along as, as we look at this section of the book of Exodus. These are the four lenses I want us to view the tabernacle through. First will be the tabernacle is the earthly dwelling place of God. Secondly, we'll see the tabernacle is the earthly pattern of a heavenly reality. Third, we'll see the tabernacle as a shadow of Jesus' work on the cross. And finally, the tabernacle is the Christian's ongoing experience. So first, let's get right into it. The tabernacle is the earthly dwelling place of God, of Yahweh. God asks or commands Moses to go take this collection from the people. He says, Verse 2, from every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. And perhaps you might find it interesting, as I did when I began reading and studying this, that this collection that God is calling for is, is really a voluntary collection. He's not commanding that every person bring certain things. He, is, he says, every man whose heart moves him, bring this collection. I think this begins to teach us something about the way God desires to be worshipped. God desires the attitude, the movement of our heart toward Him to be that which motivates us to worship Him rather than the constraining, the forcing of some outside pressure to worship God. Worship of God has to be something that is brought out from within. And certainly we know that the movement of, of the people's hearts was going to be a movement done by God in their hearts to bring this contribution, to build this dwelling place for God in their midst. And even here, God is, is helping His people understand what, what it is that they were made to do. You see, we've, we've seen the children of Israel brought out of slavery to Egypt, and we've made the point repeatedly that they, they were not freed from Egyptian bondage just to serve themselves. They were freed from Egyptian bondage God, their creator. 
God their rescuer. God their, their covenant father. So here he is. God is bringing them. He has brought them out of Egypt. He's brought them into the wilderness. He's leading them into the land that he will give them. And yet he wants to remind them that, that they are his. That they have been free to serve him. And he's doing that by coming and, and dwelling in their midst. So he calls for the people to take this collection to build for him a house, a dwelling place, a tent. And I want us to take a few minutes just to look at the pieces of furniture, because that's really what much of this text covers is the, the furniture and construction of this dwelling place. So let me take a few minutes just to describe for you. Again, I'm not going to read every verse, but I want to kind of sum up, if I can, what these, how, how these items of furniture are described. And the first one is found in chapter 25, verses 10 through 22, and it's the centerpiece. This is described even before the, the actual construction of the tent. The centerpiece of this tabernacle, this sanctuary, is the Ark of the Covenant. Now the Ark was really simply a rectangular box, 45 inches long by 27 inches wide by 27 inches tall. Not real imposing, really. Just a box made of acacia wood, but overlaid with pure gold inside and out. It had two gold rings on each side used to insert two gold or two poles also made of acacia wood overlaid with gold that were used in carrying it. What I found interesting, I didn't realize this before, but those poles never, they were, they were never removed. They just stayed in there. And then when they moved from place to place as they camped, that was, that was what was used to transport the Ark of the Covenant, these poles. Once the ark was completed, Moses was to place in them the stone tablets that he was going to receive from God containing the law. This is why the ark is called the ark of the covenant. These were the terms of the covenant, the law that God had given his people to be placed inside this box, this ark. As a reminder of their responsibility to keep the covenant, to keep the terms that God had laid before them. Not only was the ark a box, but it had a lid. The lid made out of pure gold. And on top of it were two cherubim, two angels, facing each other and their wings were were stretched out toward one another, covering the lid to this box. The cover, as we read in verse 21, actually back in, 17, he's referred to a few times. Verse 17, you shall make a mercy seat. The lid, God calls the mercy seat. This is the place where God would come and dwell. Right off the beginning, God is revealing the place, the item, that he is going to come and dwell above the mercy seat to meet with Moses, to dwell in the midst of his people. The word translated here as mercy seat is related to the word translated to atonement. Which is certainly appropriate because this is not only the place where God came to dwell with his people, but this is the place that as we study through the rest of Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, this is the place where the priest came and offered on the day of atonement the sacrifice for the forgiveness.
sins. This was the place that, that God met with his people. He dwelled with them, but he also came and made atonement for their sins. This was the centerpiece of the tabernacle, the Ark of the Covenant. A box, but oh, so much more than a box. It was the, the place where God came to meet with them. Next, we have the table of bread described in verses 23 through 30. Construction of this table was similar to that of the ark. It was built out of acacia wood and overlaid with gold. The dimensions of the table were 36 inches long by 18 inches wide by 27 inches tall. Like the ark, it also had two gold rings on each side and poles made for transport. It was to have plates and dishes for incense. And as our translation says, flagons and bowls to be used for drink offerings. So it had utensils made for this table. These were to be made out of pure gold. And finally, there was to be placed on the table loaves of bread. According to Leviticus 24, there were 12 loaves, symbolizing the 12 tribes of Israel that were that were encamped around the tabernacle. And the imagery is strong. The, the 12 tribes were there in the midst of God. God was dwelling in their midst, all of them, symbolized by the 12 loaves of bread on this table. And this table was located as you entered in to the tabernacle. This table was located on the right side of the tabernacle. The next piece of furniture opposite that on the left side was the golden lampstand described in verses 31 through 40. The lampstand also is to be made out of pure gold. It had three branches on each side and a branch up the middle for a total of seven branches. And each of these branches had a lamp on top to provide light inside the tabernacle. Moving on to chapter 26. We have the tabernacle itself described. The tabernacle was really simply a tent. Measured 45 feet long by 15 feet wide by 15 feet high. It was covered by four curtains layered one on top of another. The innermost curtain, the one you see from inside the tabernacle, was made of the fine twined linen and blue and purple and scarlet yarns according to 26 verse 1, with cherubim skillfully worked into them. The second curtain on top of that was made out of goat's hair and provided protection for the inner curtain. And in addition to these two coverings, there were two more coverings, one of ram skins and one of goat skins. All of these to provide protection for the elaborate inner curtain. The structure of the tabernacle was also made out of acacia wood poles, which were mounted in silver bases. To strengthen the structure, there were crossbars between the poles connecting them to provide the structure for this tent. And just like many of the other pieces, this acacia wood, these acacia wood poles were overlaid in gold. This was a beautiful structure. Beautiful curtains. Lots of gold. Inside the tabernacle was an additional curtain 
called the veil described in chapter 26, beginning of verse 31. Let me go ahead and read this section for us. Chapter 26, verse 31. And you shall make a veil of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen. It shall be made with cherubim skillfully worked into it. And you shall hang it on four pillars of acacia wood overlaid with gold, with hooks of gold on four bases of silver. And you shall hang the veil from the clasps and bring the ark of the testimony in there within the veil. And the veil shall separate you, for you, the holy place from the most holy. You shall put the mercy seat on the ark of the testimony in the most holy place. And you shall set the table outside the veil and the lampstand on the south side of the tabernacle opposite the table. And you shall put the table on the north side. This is a significant piece of the tabernacle. I mean, all of the pieces of furniture are significant. But this veil teaches us something. It revealed to the people something very important. Because it separated the place where God would come and dwell, called the most holy place, from the rest of the tabernacle and and certainly from the rest of the encampment of Israel. So what did the people get from this? Simply this, that yes, God came to dwell with them. So in one sense, God was approachable in that he comes to dwell in their midst, but at the same time he is unapproachable in that there is this veil separating them from his presence. What a paradox. God is at the same time both approachable yet unapproachable. All communicated to us through the construction of this tabernacle. You see, God was teaching his people something about himself through the very construction of this tent. Chapter 27 begins with the construction of the bronze altar. This altar located actually outside the tabernacle itself was also made of acacia wood, overlaid now with bronze. You may have noticed as we move further from the presence of God, the materials used become less and less valuable. That which is immediately in God's presence is the pure gold. We see silver as we begin to move away. And now we're in the, we're actually outside the tabernacle itself and, and there's bronze used. The, the tapestries are made out of less valuable materials. And even in, even in its construction, the closer you get to the presence of God, the greater the value of the materials used. This altar was seven and a half feet square and sat four and a half feet tall. It had horns on each corner. It was accompanied by pots for it to receive its ashes and shovels and basins and forks and fire pans, all of which were made of bronze. The next piece of furniture recorded in this section, or it's not a piece of furniture, it's part of the construction, it's the court of the tabernacle. You had the tent, and outside of it you had this court laid out by, by curtains hanging to separate it from the, the general camp of the Israelites. This was the area that the bronze altar sat and also the bronze basin that's described later in the book of Exodus. And finally, 
Verses 20 and 21 of chapter 27 record or describe the oil used for the lamp. It was to be pure olive oil, to be tended by the priests day and night. The purpose of which was to keep the, the, light, the, 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 the tabernacle lit all during the night. And even here is a reminder that God was continually dwelling with his people. I mean, we might think of it as the, the light always being on. Someone was always home, so to speak. God was continually dwelling in the midst of his people. This might strike us as a bit strange for the God of the universe to come and dwell in, in a tent. But again, I think there's an important lesson that God is communicating to his people. Whereas many kings and rulers live in palaces isolated from their people, certainly isolated from the commoners, here God is coming and dwelling in the same structure that, is, that his people dwell in a tent. Again, communicating that he is identifying with his people. Yes, he's separated from them by its structure. But he is coming to dwell in a tent just like they lived in. There are also aspects to the tabernacle that are reminiscent, even pointing back to the Garden of Eden. From the presence of the cherubim, guarding the presence of God. To the, the fact that the tabernacle faced east. Again, reminiscent of the Garden of Eden. But these similarities also suggest that this is even the beginning of the reversal of the separation between God and man that occurred in the garden. God was, God was beginning to reverse what he had done in, in isolating, banishing Adam and Eve from, from the garden, from his presence, from the fellowship that they had previously enjoyed. God was fixing what had been broken by man's sin, by coming to dwell with his people. So very simply, the tabernacle was the earthly dwelling place of God. God wanted his people to know that he was coming to dwell in their midst and commanded Moses that they build him a sanctuary to be set apart for that purpose. Secondly, I want us to view the tabernacle as an earthly pattern of a heavenly reality. You see, not only was the tabernacle to be the dwelling place of God, but it was also intended as a place for his people to come and worship him. One of the phrases that we, we read repeatedly through this section, if we were to read through it, many of the, the sections end with this command by God to Moses to construct these things after the pattern for them which is being shown you on the mountain. God wanted Moses, and it seems as though Moses actually somehow saw what these things were supposed to look like. Yeah, he, he saw, he observed what God wanted. It wasn't just that God handed him a blueprint, but Moses actually saw what it was to, what it was to be like. And God was very careful to remind him to to construct these things according to the pattern that you saw on the mountain. And the reason for that is because the, this building, these items of furniture, all of this was meant to portray a heavenly reality. Something far bigger than just God coming to dwell in a tent among his people. These were simply pictures. 
symbols meant to portray something even better. I want to read a couple passages for us that, that indicate this from Hebrews. The first of which from Hebrews 8 actually uses this, alludes to Moses building these things according to the pattern God showed him on the mountain. Listen to this from Hebrews chapter 8. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. And then referring to the tabernacle, they serve as a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. So here we read about a true tent, not made with hands. The tent referred to here is just a copy, a shadow of heavenly things. That's Hebrews 8. How about Hebrews 9? Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. Talking about all the sprinkling of blood and washings and, and all that went into the sacrifices. It was necessary for the copies to be purified with these rites. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. What we see as we observe the pattern of the tabernacle is what is taking place right now in all of its fullness in the presence of God. We get a glimpse of this in Revelation 4. I'm actually going to have you turn to Revelation 4 if you would. The tabernacle is meant to display a heavenly reality. Revelation 4 describes this heavenly reality. I'm actually going to read the chapter in its entirety. It's 11 verses. <coughs> this is John writing as he gets this vision. He writes this, After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were twenty-four thrones, and seated on the thrones were twenty-four elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, 
Holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. You see, right now, there is everlasting worship taking place before the throne of our God. And when we come and gather in places like this, we simply join in with that worship that is already taking place. We join our voices with the voices of those that are experiencing the fullness of God's presence. And the worship taking place in Revelation 4, the worship taking place in heaven right now in God's presence is the definition of true worship. Because they are worshiping God with uninhibited view of His presence, of His holiness, of His glory. True worship is that which worships God because of who He is, having seen Him. It's striking as we read through Scripture and see those that that get a vision of the holiness and glory of God. From John in the book of Revelation, even to Job who is reminded by God himself that he has no claim on the power of God. He was not there when God made everything around us. To Isaiah who saw the Lord sitting on a throne. And hearing the angels cry, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Isaiah's response is simply, woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Habakkuk records in Habakkuk 2.20, The Lord is in His holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before Him. True worship of God is informed by a greater understanding of who God is. Is the worship that we offer God governed by an expanding vision of Him and His glory? Or do we seek to worship God on our terms? Defining God in our terms. The Bible certainly presents a transforming view of worship when those who worship truly see God for who He is. And so our call is we gather to worship whether corporately or individually, is to worship God on the basis of who He is, to know God, to see God, 
as he has revealed himself. Not to worship God on our terms. You see, how easy is it for us to worship when we feel like worshiping? When our hearts are joyful. There are those that worship even when that worship is a recognition of God's sovereign authority over our life. His rule over our circumstances. One commentator put it this way, the worship God is seeking relies completely on his initiative. Knowing that the only true expression of worship is through the abandonment of all our agendas for his. As we trust in his sovereign power and unlimited grace. It is from this heart posture that true liturgy flows. And that music and arts find their highest calling. And so my point is this, that the tabernacle, even our coming together in a place like this to worship God is simply an earthly pattern of what is already happening in all of its fullness in God's very presence right now. And so our, our call is to see more and more of God, to bring our own worship more in line with the worship of those that, that know God fully. Worshiping God on His terms rather than our terms. One other connection I want to make with regard to the tabernacle being a pattern of a heavenly reality is that the table with the bread is a pointer to the feast that we will share with God in heaven. Again, share this feast in His very presence. The ratification of a covenant was accompanied by a meal. That's the imagery even in the tabernacle. The the presence of the terms of the covenant with this table, with the, the bread, all part of a covenant feast, pointing to a covenant feast that we will share with God at the ultimate fulfillment of His covenant with us. In anticipation of that meal, we have commanded we have been commanded to share a meal together as we await the final consummation. It's a meal that we will share together today, the Lord's table. It's, it's a meal we, we eat in anticipation of, of eating that meal in God's presence. So the tabernacle, the furniture, the way it was constructed is an earthly pattern of a heavenly reality. Thirdly, the tabernacle is a shadow of Jesus' work on the cross, Jesus' saving work for us. The New Testament, as it records and comments on the life and ministry of Jesus, which culminated in his death and and resurrection, reveals to us that he was the fulfillment of the Old Testament types, including that of the tabernacle. I just want us to look at a couple there. I mean, we could spend all day looking at ways that the tabernacle, the furniture point to Christ. I want to just mention a couple. The first is this, that Jesus came as Emmanuel, God with us. At the outset of Jesus' ministry on earth, we are told that his coming 
was a fulfillment of this Old Testament type. John chapter 1, verse 14. And the Word, referring to Christ, became flesh and dwelt among us, tabernacled among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Remember, the arrival of Jesus on earth ended a period of 400 years where God's people did not hear from God. And onto the scene comes Emmanuel. Once again, God coming to dwell with his people. This time, not in a tent, a a physical tent, but as Jesus called, the tent of his body. Jesus was the incarnation of God. Coming to dwell with his people. And what a statement God makes after 400 years of silence. God makes this statement that I come to dwell with you and I do so through the person of my son, Jesus Christ. Matthew 1.23 Describing the birth of Jesus, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Jesus came as Emmanuel, God with us. John 1 also tells us that no one has seen God, but that Jesus came and made God known so that when we see Christ, we see God. And our ultimate hope and expectation as God's people is that one day we will see Jesus face to face, and and having seen him face to face, we will be like him. We will be changed. We will be transformed into the image of Christ because we have seen him. That's what we expect. That's what we anticipate. All because Jesus came as Emmanuel, God with us. Also, Jesus is the curtain of the temple. Jesus is the veil of the temple. That curtain that provided an impenetrable barrier between God's presence and his people. So serious was God about this that only one person, the high priest, was allowed access into there only one day of the year. This ark, the mercy seat, this room, the most holy place, all of that only accessed one time a year by one person. Access to God was limited by this veil. But in Jesus, who is referred to in Hebrews 10 as the veil, as the curtain, made the way for us to have access to God's very presence. Hebrews 10, 18 through 21, where there is forgiveness of these, that is sins, there is no longer any offering for sin. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Jesus himself being the curtain, his body torn for us so that we might have access to God. And as Matthew 27 records it, that Jesus cried out with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, 
the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. When Jesus died on the cross, access to God was no longer limited. It was opened up so that we might have access to God through Christ. So you and I in Christ have direct access to God. Hebrews also tells us, commands us to enter boldly into his presence. To come before his throne through Christ and do so boldly. Jesus is our only way of access to God. He is our only means of protection against God's consuming holiness. Just as that veil in the tabernacle and later the temple protected the people from God's consuming holiness. So now Jesus, who himself is the curtain, protects us from that consuming holiness. Because he has removed that curtain, he has, he has made the, the once and for all atonement for sin at the mercy seat. So the tabernacle is a shadow of, of Jesus' work as he comes to dwell with us as the incarnation of God and then makes the way, opens the way for us to, to enter the presence of God in the most holy place through his blood. And my encouragement would be for any here who have yet to trust in that once and for all atonement for sin to do so. Otherwise you are in danger of being consumed by the fire of God's holiness. But Jesus has made the way through His blood. And those who are in Christ have access to the presence of God, the forgiveness of sins. Then finally, the tabernacle is the Christian's ongoing experience. We've seen a progression so far of of God coming initially to his people in the wilderness to dwell with them, something that perhaps was unthinkable as they stood before Mount Sinai and, and heard the voice of God give them the law, and even the command not to touch the mountain lest you die. That God that spoke to them came to dwell with them. And we've seen that progress on to the coming of Christ. It was the incarnation of God. It was God coming to dwell with man in the person of his Son. But the progression continues because for those who are in Christ now have God the Spirit dwelling inside of us. So that in a sense all of us are tabernacles. We all have the presence of God dwelling within our hearts. It's no longer a place that we go to to meet God. Or a person through whom do we meet God. It is now that God meets us. In our very hearts. Again, I want to read from Hebrews. This time, chapter 10, beginning in verse 11. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifice, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declared the Lord. I will put my law on their hearts and write them on their minds. 
And God comes now. These terms of the covenant have been written on our hearts by His Spirit. He's given us His Spirit to dwell within us, to enable us to obey the covenant. This means that each Christian is a tabernacle in, in which God dwells and through whom He is worshipped. Though our study today has focused on the tabernacle as being a place that God came to dwell and a place that His people would come to worship Him and offer sacrifice before Him. We know from Jesus' own words that true worship of, of God is not confined to a certain place. He tells the woman that He met in John 4, Precisely the same thing. When she asked him this question. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And Jesus says to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the father. You worship what you do not know, but the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. His point being that the worship of God is no longer limited to a place. The worship of God is now done through the hearts and lives of those in whom God's spirit dwells. So you see, everywhere we go, everything we do is an opportunity to worship God. As it's often said, and rightly so, there is no distinction between what is sacred and what is uh, secular in our life. More than that, we are always communicating something about God through our lives. We are always communicating something. Either God is all-satisfying and worthy of our worship and obedience, or he is easily dismissed in the pursuit of our own desires. Again, I take us back to what it means to worship God, to, to see God. Seeing God rightly moves us to worship Him rightly and obediently. When we do not understand God properly, we go our own way. We follow after our own desires. We serve and worship ourselves. I mean, at its, at its core, this is, this is the problem with mankind. This is why there was that separation in the first place. It was because mankind chose to seek after their own desires rather than to obey God. This is why that rebellion had to be covered with sacrifices in order to meet God in the tabernacle. But now, we as Christians, having unfettered access through the blood of Jesus, have the ability and the responsibility and the call to worship God in everything we do. This is a ministry of the Holy Spirit in us. This is the, the gift that we have. You remember when Jesus was here and, and his disciples were concerned that he was leaving them, but he promised them that he would send the Comforter, the Holy Ghost, 
to come and indwell. And as hard as it was probably for them to understand in that moment when they saw Jesus with their own eyes, that gift of the Spirit is is far more powerful than standing next to the Son of God. We now have God dwelling within us, empowering us and enabling us to worship God as we should, to put away sin as we should, to follow Him in obedience. The Holy Spirit convicts us of sin in order to bring us to repentance so that we might daily live according to the position that we are already in. We have already been made made clean, made, made righteous before God. And now by God's Spirit, He is working in us to be able to obey and to live in that reality by putting away sin and pursuing God. And so we have seen these four aspects of the tabernacle. God coming to dwell with His people. This tent being a pattern of what is already taking place in in the presence of God and something that we anticipate and look forward to. We've seen the tabernacle as a shadow of Jesus' saving work for us. And then the tabernacle is our own everyday experience of living in the presence of God, having God dwell within us and empower us. And even as we come now to the Lord's table and we we have an opportunity to, through this meal, anticipate the feast that we will share in His presence. Our desire in, in celebrating this meal together is that that anticipation would, would lead us, as I've just said, to put away sin. This table, as we remind you regularly, is, is open to all those who, who are in Christ. All of those that are trusting in the finished work of Christ to make atonement for our sins. This table is open for you. We come as a celebration of, of that access to God being, being made on our behalf. So may this be a, a time that we remember the work of Christ on the cross. We thank Him for that work on the cross. And we look forward to the day that we will eat this meal with Him in His presence. So I will pray and the servers will come, the music team will come. And, and as we, we typically do, when, when the music begins, you come and, and partake of, of the elements. We will enjoy this time together. Again, we are, we are joining in with, with, with what is already taking place right now in God's presence. We have an opportunity to enjoy that fellowship, enjoy this feast as we look forward to that day. Father, I thank you that you have chosen to come and dwell with us. Praise you that you, in your wisdom, sent your Son to be Emmanuel, to come and dwell among your people, to take on human flesh, that He might offer Himself as 
the atoning sacrifice. That as his body was broken and torn, in the offering of that sacrifice, the veil separating us from your presence was also torn, so that through him we have access. And so now as we come to the Lord's table, I, I pray that we would remember that work for us. That even as we remember that, we would be reminded that you have given us your spirit to indwell us. And even as he convicts us of sin, That we would even right now, before partaking of, of the elements, repent of that sin. Believing that in repenting we will find forgiveness through Jesus. That this table would be an opportunity to experience forgiveness for sin where necessary and give us a taste of what it is like to feast with you in your presence. That even the anticipation of that and the, the confidence that we have your spirit working in us and that you will accomplish in our hearts and in our lives, the, the victory over sin, the ability to worship you truly for who you are, all of that would be accomplished in our hearts. We pray that this celebration of the table would be a means of, of accomplishing that in us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.